Last um, session, what have been class 115 or whatever, I think that's what it was. Um, the, the last uh, conversation we talked about was all about uh, Christian science. And there was just a whole lot of discussion for those of you who are, most of you are watching these in sequence. I'm talking to the, the uh, not real-time audience. Um, but we had a lot of discussion about Christian science and their relationship to affirmative, affirming positive health, positive energy versus a lot of other things. Um, and so there was a question that was asked me in between since that class about uh, the real balance. When does positive thinking become unwholesome? And there were just a couple of other um, attitudes in relationship to that that I, I think are worth addressing that I might have if I'd had more time last, last week. Um, there was a woman who had a very serious cancer at Ananda and she eventually took extremely aggressive medical care. She extended her life by quite a few years. You know, when she was in advanced, very serious stage four cancer, she lived for seven more years. And much of that was was a reasonable quality of life. It wasn't like she was debilitated. I mean, because of the intensity of the medical intervention, the allopathic medical intervention, her 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 health was compromised. If you can say that, if you have a terminal illness, but her vitality was compromised. But nonetheless, she had a, a reasonable quality of life. Was able to work through a lot of karma. Master said that the cancer particularly is a very good way to work out karma, which is just very interesting. But before she accepted the allopathic route, being a person who was inclined toward natural living, she became um, attracted to various, what you would call alternative or natural approaches to healing herself of the cancer. Now, of course, I mean, by the time it was discovered, it was very advanced, so it wasn't like she had a lot of margin in there. But she, she was you know, sort of talking to Swamiji about this, she could do this and she could do that. Swami's response was extremely interesting. He just looked at her very penetratingly and he said, do you have the concentration and the discipline to heal yourself? And it was just, it was like such an interesting question and he just asked it to her in such a way that it wasn't, it was like it, it penetrated into her and she had to answer. And she said, no, sir. I don't. Because the difference between what's theoretically possible and what is possible is, is the very important line. And a lot of times people get confused because it's theoretically possible. They don't take into account what you might call the metaphysics of healing, which is if, if a certain situation has been building for a per- period of time, if it's reached a certain... Uh, all-pervasive quality within you. Um, it, it, what we're talking about, it's, it's energy versus energy. An energy pattern gets set, and that energy pattern gets set because we build up to it over many lifetimes and over the course of one lifetime. I was talking to some friends of mine uh, a few months ago who are young and relatively healthy, but the habits that they were following were not good. 
And I said to them, and I mean, my, my knowledge of medicine is very small, but I remember Dr. Peter telling us that all the cells in your body are replaced every seven years. So I said, you'll go, go on this way, you know, with insufficient hydration, insufficient nutrition, um, too much of the wrong, too much caffeine, not enough whole food. And because you're young, you'll feel fine, except over seven years, you'll build a new physical pattern that hasn't been fed properly. And then by that time, suddenly things will change because of what you're doing now, but you won't know it now. So, and, and of course, that wasn't a curse. And I, I said to them, this is not a curse. This is my tiny bit of medical knowledge. And I'm just sort of sharing with you how to think about this. Because the mere fact that it says, I feel fine, you know, drinking tea in the morning, drinking coffee in the afternoon, and not eating any solid food until three o'clock, just because you feel fine doesn't mean you are fine. Because by the time it shows up as disease, you have mental patterns, you have physical patterns, and they've spent a long time manifesting, and they can be reversed in an instant. But what they have to do is there has to be enough energy in a new direction that you actually change the energy in that direction. And there's a lot of, it's not as black and white as that. A friend of mine who, well, two friends of mine I know who had very serious cancer. Basically, both of them were single mothers of young children. I mean, really young children. And basically, dying was not an option. <laughs> and neither of them died. And both of them have, have raised their children well into adulthood without any recurring. Because there was enough energy in the fact that they were going to raise their own children and that they didn't die. Now, once again, karma plays a great role in this. So you can't say just because so-and-so did it, it must work for this one. But there's an energetic exchange. And the energetic exchange is the difference between wishful thinking and positive thinking. Because positive thinking is not just, oh, everything's going to be all right. You know, everything has to be all right. I love, you know, I love God. Everything's going to be all right. And what happens a lot of time is people fall into a pattern of actual wishful thinking. And the wishful thinking is not, is not dynamic enough to actually generate a positive flow. Or the wishful thinking is not actually based on a courageous willingness to deal with what's going on, but on the hope that it'll just go away. And it, it's the waiting to be rescued that we kind of masquerade by talking about being positive. I'm just not going to think about it. But the, in, the, the inability to think about it, and actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's right here, number 419, the next one. Master, a disciple inquired, what is the best way to work out karma? Master replied, karma is best worked out by meeting life's tests cheerfully and courageously. If you still fear something, that karma has not yet been worked out. To dissipate it, don't try to avoid the tests you have to face. Rise above them bravely by dwelling in God's joy within. So a lot of times we have karma and we don't want to have to face it. So we just fall into wishful thinking and think that's a spiritual attitude. And then there's another, I'll go back to that one in a minute, but there's another attitude that goes with it that I've seen, which is very much more subtle and more complex. And I 
as much as I've tried to sort this out, I'm not sure I really can uh, bring it to a clear focus, except the fear is actually part of it, which is because we know that God can do a miracle, we, we sometimes become convinced that if we don't believe in the miracle, that means we don't have faith in God. And so we feel like, I have to believe, and it, it happens, it's, it tends to happen around illness, and it tends to happen around serious illness, either serious illness that we have or a loved one of ours has. You know, we, we know that God could cure the person or could cure me, and so we're afraid to consider that he might not <coughs> because that means I don't believe in God enough. It's to assume that the outcome that I prefer is also what God wants. You know, that's the confusing, the desire of the ego with what God's plan might be. And, and I think, as far as I've been able to see in observing this, um, it has to do with fear. Like, what if my husband is going to die? What if my autistic son is never really going to be a normal be able to function like other people do, you know, and is always going to be different. You know, what if, if this illness I have will take me away and I won't raise my children? The fear of that sometimes gets all confused in with, I, I, I believe in a miracle. I know God can do it. And I, again, I don't have a really clear way to put this all in order, But these things are more subtle. And it's almost like Swami's simple comment to that woman, do you have the concentration and discipline actually to heal yourself? You know, do you really have in you that much faith, that much power? And in the two cases I spoke of where the women had that much power because they were able to generate something and it was not their destiny to die, which is also strange. You don't know how to sort that in. My experience with terminal illness is that nothing we do actually makes much difference (laughs) that that people worry about every decision and I've often reassured people just do whatever you think is best because you'll just you're an instrument of your own destiny at this point and and you can't change your destiny by accidentally not taking the right herbs you know you will take the right herbs or you won't take the right herbs but your destiny is not determined by something so small as, oh, if only, you know, like that. It just, it just doesn't happen like that. So anyway, those, are, those seem like thoughts. Now, the other thought that he has in here, which is as long as you fear something, you still have that karma. I remember talking to Swami and him. I, I remember the time that Swami said that to me because it made such a vivid impression on my mind. And it also... Um, when I was in India uh, over the last two months recently, I gave a satsang. I haven't gotten the recording yet because I forgot about it. I'm going to write someone and ask for the recording. It was a, I was invited to someone's home and he invited about 15 people, core members of our group there. But it was a more smaller, more informal setting. And uh, the subject he wanted me to talk about was how to be a Jeevan Mukta in this lifetime. And I'm not going to give that whole talk here because... I'll just get it posted on YouTube, which now that I've remembered that I don't have it yet. Um, but 
I, I get in trouble when I say this because Master said we're supposed to become Jivan Muktas and Swamiji urged us to become Jivan Muktas, but I don't really think about it very much because, just for a whole lot of reasons, but let's see now, but why did I bring this up? What was I? Oh, yes, because I fear a lot of things. It's just as simple as that. I have too many fears. I, I, I feel like if a person were really about finished with his karma, he wouldn't be afraid of as many things as I'm afraid of. It's just like when you're free, you're not afraid. And there you have it. It's just like that. You know, Swamiji wasn't afraid of anything. It was just, he wasn't afraid of physical pain. He wasn't afraid of humiliation. He wasn't afraid of... It's not that he enjoyed it. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a fine line. It's not that he enjoyed it, but he didn't fear it. You know, as he often said, a little pain never hurt anyone. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's a real ad- attitude of freedom. And when, within ourselves, when we ask ourselves, you know, what, uh, am I working out karma? Am I progressing spiritually? Those are really the questions. How, how am I working with my fear? Because perfect love casts out all fear. So when we do love God perfectly then we know there's no, there's no space in our mind that doubts what God is going to give us. And even though I have a lot of fears, I also have a lot of faith. I ha- had this experience when I was in seclusion, when I was writing uh, the book about Swamiji, and this would have been when I was in seclusion two years ago probably, or whenever it was. Um, I was in uh, the cabin that was up in the very northern part of Washington State, right up by the Canadian border. I was in two seclusion cabins, and that one was the very, very isolated one. No telephone, no internet, and the closest neighbor you could see was about a mile and a half away. But I was just really alone. And I was never nervous there. I wasn't afraid. I drove a thousand miles to a place I'd never seen, and I was perfectly confident. I was very comfortable there the whole time, except once. And the cabin was like a, uh, there was a, a, the road that the cabin was on was an unpaved road, but it was a, a, a route that there were a lot of houses on that route. And then there was a gate that was closed, but not locked. And then it was a quarter of a mile driveway down to where my, where I was staying. And I would see some traffic on that road, but not much. And I was there one, uh, it was, it was probably dusk. And I was just standing looking out the window. It may have been snowing, I don't recall. But I was just looking out the window. And all of a sudden, I thought of a group of ruffians, whether they were, you know, a rough gang of teenage boys. And in that area, there could have been such a thing, although it wasn't really... uh, It was a clean, nice place and and a rural area and good people. But, you know, there were some rough characters just because of the area. So I had this picture of like maybe drunk men or, or, or tough youths or something like that. And this whole picture came in where this carload of, of wild men come down. And, you know, there were windows. They could just crash through the window and beat me up with pipes. Don't ask me why, but I just, I had it and I absolutely panicked. I mean, I just, out of nothing, I went into this complete state of panic. And... You know, I just didn't know what to do. Should I get in my car? Should I? It wasn't like I thought it was going to happen, but I just became terrified that it might. You know, it wasn't a premonition. 
And I thought to myself, you know, Asha, if you're scared to be here, how are you going to write this book? Because it was so perfect a place for me to work on the book and everything was happening perfectly. But if I suddenly became too frightened to stay there, what was I going to do? So I, I lived there in that state of, of panic for a few minutes and then just the reality of, I have to get over this. So I took a very, I took a very bold solution because I had to. And I, I just tried to imagine, what if it did happen? You know, what if? And I imagined the whole thing, them coming in, my trying to stop them, them coming through the window, and th- their pipes, don't ask me why. And I thought, well, you know, if somebody, start, that starts happening to you, I know this from talking to people, you, you lose awareness, you know. It's not like when, you're, when, you, when your body goes into that much trauma, it's not like you actually experience all of it. So I thought about that. It'll be scary for a little bit, but you know, then I'll either pass out or I'll die. You know, and then what will I do? How will I deal with it if I'm still living? After they leave, what will happen? And in other words, instead of saying, no, it's not going to happen, this is just a fantasy, I just said, what if? I remembered this. If you're still afraid of something, then the karma is still there for you to face and to be worked out. So I, I walked myself through the whole thing and, and, and then said, without any doubt, if God sent me such an experience, there would be a good reason for it. And therefore, no matter what it looked like or what it felt like or what it asked of me, there would be a good reason. And when I got to the other side of it, I would have been given something that would be a gift and I would have learned something that I needed to learn. I mean, I, like most people, have a great fear of physical pain. You know, Swamiji was always talking to us about going to the dentist without Novocaine. Just horrible stories he would tell us about it. And I I wrote some of this up in the first book, Swami Kriyananda, as we've known him. I would think, why is he doing this to us? And then I realized that almost all of us fear physical pain. I actually, mine goes all the way to fearing being tortured, which I recently found out not everybody fears being tortured. It's probably my revolutionary past. Um, But we don't have many opportunities in the life we live because, you know, we're relatively speaking comfortable unless something catastrophic happens to you. We just don't have opportunities where we really get to face into the fear of physical pain. And going to the dentist actually is one of them. (laughs) And I realized that, I mean, some people have tried to mimic Swami. I've never tried, ever. It's just, no, actually one time I did, and I swore I'd never do it again for just a simple, you know, filling. And that was just, that was more than I could do. But um, he challenges us to face our fears, is all that he's saying. He's just challenging us to face our fears, because as long as you fear it, the karma is there still in front of you to work out. So, again, coming back to the idea of wishful thinking, positive thinking, believing in a miracle, all of that is fine as long as the actual center point of the vritti is not fear. When we talk about the chakras, you know, I talk about how the whirlpool of energy develops around a center point. And I learned in my life that lots of the whirlpools that I was carrying, (coughs) 
the actual center point was fear. Uh, it, and it came up, it came into my mind first when I was about 18, and I realized that I had a very strong fear of conflict. And as a result, I had a, a, a I developed a personality that was uh, acquiescent, especially especially in certain circumstances. And I realized, but I wasn't really harmonious. I was just afraid. And and that's not the same because the center point around which the whole whirlpool was built was fear. And I had to overcome the fear and then I could decide whether to be harmonious or not. But my harmony was a fake. It was just, oh, please, please don't dislike me. Please, please. When I had to um, work with the effort to incorporate Ananda as a California city, which was a project I did in 1981 into 82. And um, Ananda wanted to incorporate itself as Ananda Village in Nevada County, wanted to incorporate itself as a California city. And everybody else around us did not want us to do it. So I had to, I was the, I was the mouthpiece for it. There were two other women who were lawyers and I was, they were basically the brains and I was mostly the mouthpiece. And I had to constantly stand up against opposition. Sometimes a hundred people in the room and a hundred people were opposed, you know, or every time we went. And by the end of it, there were 800 people in the room and like 150 were Anand and we were for it. And all the other 650 were against it. And they were not, they were not gracious in their opposition. And in the end, we didn't succeed. But among many things that came from it, Swami said to me, he said, um, you had too much of a tendency to tell people what they wanted to hear. He said, it made you much stronger in just speaking the truth regardless. And it was, it was, it was so. There was a, a radio show that I was on where I, I was strong at the beginning, but when she started really challenging me, I just started trying to placate her instead of just drawing the line. And I hadn't, I hadn't really realized it until Swami listened to that show and told me. And then I listened to the recording of it, and there it was. I just saw myself fold up and try to be nice. And uh, because I was afraid. I was afraid of the conflict. I was afraid to speak the truth. And that's, that's how we have to deal with karma. Just face it courageously, whatever it is. And even if... You're miserable. I was saying here, I was talking to someone recently who is going through what I call a hundred percenter, where everything is, she's losing everything virtually. Well, that's not true. Hers is actually about a 67 percenter. <laughs> you know, she's keeping a lot of really important aspects of her life or keeping, but a lot of people are going away and it's very tough. She was asking me for some, you know, super secret, powerful meditation that could help her get through. I told her, um, don't get addicted to sleeping pills or drink. <laughs> you know, go through it without getting addicted to something that will be a huge problem on its own. Don't die. Um, and don't lose faith in Master. I said, that's all you need to do. That's success. She laughed and said she had no inclination toward addiction. And Master was all she had. And that's, that's really, time passes and we get through it. And th- that's Courage. Courage is not never feeling sick to your stomach or never complaining or never collapsing in tears. It's just persevering and not losing faith. 
And and that's what that's what power is. Even if I don't like it, even if I don't know how I'm going to live through it, I was remembering Saint Anthony in the tomb. We have that recording of Master, where where Master takes us through to the crisis point of Saint Anthony in the tomb, where the devil is just right there, and he's been meditating in this tomb for. 50 years or whatever it's been and the devil is going to bring the tomb down on his head and the, 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 you know, the hieroglyphics on the wall have come to life and he's surrounded by creatures. I mean, it's just he's a, a, assaulted on every side by the devil and he thinks that the mountain is going to come crashing down on him and it's all done. And it's been going on for a long time and finally Jesus appears and Anthony says, where were you? Which is also in itself an interesting statement. You know, where were you? I was so miserable. And, and then you hear Master's voice say, Anthony, I was just the same with you. I was always with you. I never left you. And that's, that's, that's a big, that's a, a big, hard thing to understand. Swamiji commented when he was expelled from SRF in 1962 and at the age of 36 was separated from everybody, every friend he had because they were all part of SRF and he was ostracized completely. He had given his life to God. He had thought his life was dedicated to Master's work. He just didn't know what to do. He said he lay on his bed, stared at the ceiling and prayed to die. That's how he felt. And then... Gradually, as he came back to public life, he was still profoundly wounded. And he uh, talked and gave a concert or something like that. And people talked about the great joy they felt from him. And Swami's comment, which is just something to meditate on, he said, joy was absolutely the last thing he felt. He said, but when he really considered deeply, he realized that underneath all the pain there was still a level of joy. But he wasn't conscious of it until he was forced to think about it. In Corey Tenboom's book, um, The Hiding Place, where Corey and Betsy are Dutch Christians who shelter Jews and end up in a concentration camp because of it during World War II. And Betsy's the older sister Betsy dies in the concentration camp. Corey lives. And just before Betsy dies, she says to Corey, after this is over, you must travel the world telling people that no matter how deep the darkness, how deep the suffering, the love of Jesus is deeper still. And that's, you know, that's really extraordinary given where she was. So whenever I think of this, what I'm afraid of, the karma that I'm afraid of, I think I was always the same with you, Anthony. You know, the love of Jesus is deeper still, so why would I be afraid to be pushed to have to realize that? You know, it's, it's extremely important to practice, you know, just getting at least the flow of energy in the right direction. And as much as we're able, it's a little... Um, you, ha- you have to be judicious in the sense of, of meditating on the things that you're afraid of. 
because you can actually do damage to your psyche by bringing too many fearful things into it. But there's a place for trying to bring into the light the things that are making you anxious, like I did when I was suddenly afraid living in that house and I needed to not be afraid. So I was forced to bring into the light something I was terrified of. But you have to make sure that you have enough light and you won't end up just being more scared. Shivani used to say, when we were all living at Ananda village and every so often Swami would call you over to his house and we didn't have telephones or anything so you'd sort of just get a message, Swami wants you to come over. And often you had to walk because we didn't have cars. And Shivani said every time she was called, invited to Swami's house, she would use the walk over to practice how she would respond when he told her he was expelling her from Ananda. (laughs) And she would, you know, act it out, hear him say it. I mean, everybody has a different karma, right? She would act him out, hear him say it, except that it was just, imagine what she would do next. You know, so by the time she got to the door, she was prepared. Of course, he never invited her over to expel her, but nonetheless, that was her fear from who knows what. And she would just work her way through it, just like I did with the men in the pipes. You know, it's just like, what if? It's going to be for my own good. I remember when I flew to India by myself. It may have been the first time I flew by myself. I don't know. I went uh, on, I think, ASEAN Airlines, which stopped in South Korea, Seoul, South Korea. And I had like three or four hours in this airport, which is actually a really nice airport. It was a really nice connection. And I just thought, what if the, you know, what if the worldwide global system collapses and I am alone in South Korea and I never can get anywhere else from here? And I thought, well, you know, immigrants who can't speak the language have to clean hotel rooms. <laughs> so I imagined me cleaning hotel rooms while I, while I learned South Korean. And then I, after this, I gradually learned the language. Then I would have to start teaching master's teachings again. And, you know, I just played the whole thing out because all of a sudden I realized I'm, you know, 10,000 miles from, from every, everyone and everything I know and I'm completely by myself. And I, I felt anxious about it. So what's the worst that can happen? You know, I clean hotel rooms. And then I imagined I'll be in a high-class hotel and then I'll meet someone who, you know, will help me. I mean, I just played the whole thing out until I had a, a nice center for Ananda there in South Korea. <laughs> I mean, there would be a lot of lonely days and nights. But you understand what I'm saying. And, and it's, it's worth doing. Because we can, it, with enough energy, you see, we can dispel things with thought because these are just energy patterns. We don't have to live through them. And just thinking about them will not attract them unless our thinking about them increases the fear of them. And that's why I say it has to be, it's a fine line. That's the art. All right. Any thoughts or questions before I go on? Okay. Number 420. If you, this is Master speaking. If you criticize others judgmentally rather than simply commenting on their behavior impartially, that shows that you have their faults to work on in yourself. It's just He just makes that as an absolute flat statement. If their qualities agitate you, that's what he's really saying. If, the, if their qualities agitate you, that's what judgment is. It, it makes you off balance. 
instead of just saying, huh, look at that. That's really not a very helpful way to behave. Huh, look at that guy. He's really confused about what right action would be. Oh, look at that one. Look, he's being dishonest in the hope that it'll get him out of that situation. I mean, you can use your discrimination and see it. That's not the same as judgmental. (gasps) He's lying. How dare he talk like that? Whatever makes him think that's the right thing to do. How dare you? You know, he's such an awful person. I just hate it when people behave like that. I mean, that's judgment. You can see there's a lot of difference. By criticizing others, he said, that shows that you have their faults to work on in yourself. Because you see what happens is, uh, one recognizes something that one wants to expel from existence. And so we try to expel it from the external world in the hope that it'll expel it from the internal world. And if we're not, if it's not a part of our reality, it just doesn't. Swami used to use the example, if someone comes up to you and says, you're from another planet, I know you're a Martian and you're here to infiltrate Earth, you don't say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. I mean, there's nothing in you that needs to refute it. It's just silly. Who cares? But when it touches something close or when it it mirrors something that's yours, there's a resonance in you and there's a a repulsiveness to it, a repellingness from you because there's a resonance. If there's just an observation, then there's no resonance. Um, That's why a person like Swamiji could just accept everyone because he didn't have those faults so he didn't it didn't resonate with him that's how saint francis could be so sweet swami writes that in uh, visit to saints of india but it also included visiting assisi for the first time he said when he was meditating in the portuncula which is the little chapel that francis rebuilt he said he just felt this incredible sweetness from francis he said and he said he prayed how could anyone be so sweet And he said, by seeing everyone as a brother and sister, that's the intuition that came to him. And and above all, by never judging. And how can you never judge? You never judge when you're not dealing with those faults in yourself, which is to say, when your own heart is pure, then there's no answering resonance. There's just observation and compassion. And then how could I help? So, and then he goes on to say, by criticizing others, moreover, you increase those faults in yourself, which is because you're, why? Because you're concentrating on them, you're putting energy into them. Oh, I know why. Because what you condemn in others, you will have to experience someday yourself. So what you're doing is you're magnetizing the, the lesson to you. This is the karmic law. In that way, people are taught compassion. So when you see someone, instead of having compassion for them, you condemn them, then you have to experience what it's like to be caught in that same delusion so that you will then be sympathetic to people who are caught in that same delusion. Because that's how Divine Mother is. So it's, you know, it's very, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating cycle to watch within ourselves. You know, and I, I, I have a temperament that I've, I've, uh, I've transmuted a great deal of it, but as I put it, I said, I, I, I would easily become irate. <laughs> and Swami wrote to me once, you know, merely because someone makes a mistake does not mean that they've actually done something wrong. He said, and he said to me, he said, when the people make a mistake, 
you immediately translate it into their, in your mind to the fact that they've done something wrong. No, they've just made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. And of course, that's how I would treat myself. If I made a mistake, I'd done something wrong. And so all this condemnation would come in. And over the course of the years I've been on the path, I've suffered a lot because of that. You know, that condemning nature has come back on me in, in full force, and I've suffered. And because of that, I feel very sympathetic now when I see people misbehaving, by no means in all circumstances, but vastly more than I used to. Because I know what it's like to be weak and to suffer, and I didn't understand it before. It's just as simple as that. And this is where good karma, bad karma is good karma, because bad karma frees you from bad karma and makes you gooder. So you just, you just have to work with it. You just have to realize this attitude is not going to help me. You, just, you, become, you have to become supremely practical on the spiritual path. How much longer do I want to suffer? This is a real simple question. How much longer do I want to suffer? And at a certain point, you really don't want to suffer anymore. And then the effort to develop compassion seems like less work than just giving in to, to the same old attitudes. There was a point at which I realized I enjoyed being judgmental. It wasn't so much judgmental as I... And self-righteous is probably the right word, which is pretty close to judgmental. I think I'm splitting hairs. But I enjoyed being self-righteous. <laughs> I just... I realized that I got a certain pleasure out of running the tape. And when I really r- realized that it was pleasurable to run the tape, I was horrified. I mean, it just kind of came... It was. I reached critical mass. I was horrified. And that was the beginning of when I was really able to switch my energy. Just, oh my God, what am I doing? You know, I might as well just pick up a knife and just start stabbing myself in the side. Like, this is, this is really, really not going to bring you anything you want. And, and there just has to, there comes a, a point where we keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and finally the karma turns. And, and we become somebody else. I speak from experience. You become somebody else. <laughs> All right. Any questions or comments or thoughts? So number 421. The company you keep cannot but influence you, especially if you keep that company by choice. I think that's a very important point here. This is Master speaking. Especially if you keep that company by choice. When I was in India, where there's a lot of people live in expanded families, the Indian question is, what do I do about my family? And it wasn't always that the family was terrible, although sometimes there were things going on in the families that were highly unfortunate. But it was also just there's so many of them, and they take so much of my time, and they have so many expectations of me, and I would rather shift my life in another direction, but if I try to do that... They don't want me to do it. And, you know, that was just, it just came up over and over again. In America, where people just move across the country, out of the, out of the country, and there's a lot more individuality. Our culture um, separates you from the tribe, and, and that's part of the values. Whereas that culture, the Indian culture and others, in Asia especially, do not separate you from the tribe. You are part of the tribe, and that's just who you are. But... This distinction that Swami 
that Master makes here, especially if you keep that company by choice, he's suddenly sort of telling you that the influence of the company that you can't avoid because you were born into it or married into it is a different kind of influence on you than when you go out and choose disharmonious or worldly or superficial or evil. My master, this is Yogananda speaking, my master, meaning Sri Yukteswar, used to say, therefore, keep a spiritual bodyguard with you when mixing with others. I have always obeyed his advice. I've made it a point to surround myself with a few spiritual souls. Most of the time, however, I prefer to be alone with God. But it, Swamiji, you know, in, in the monastic life, it was, uh, well, it was close to a rule, but we were not very rule-bound. But in many monastic lives, the, the, the monk or nun never goes anywhere alone. It's just they always take someone with them. They always have a spiritual bodyguard because if there's somebody with you, it will save you from your own temptation. Just if you're all by yourself and, and, and some thought occurs to you that is inconsistent with your aspirations and you're the only one there, it's much uh, more likely that you're going to just fall into it. But if you have someone with you who shares your values um, and would not support you in that action, would try to talk you out of it, would observe it and you would be, you would be outed for what you'd done. I mean, there's just lots of things. And punishment or humiliation or being caught is a, is a great benefit if your actual commitment is to behave properly. So you, you take someone with you who will make it impossible for you to behave improperly because it just couldn't happen and they'll keep that vibration with you. I, um, I have observed over the years that when people begin to get out of tune with the spiritual path, this very weird thing happens. They, they completely forget what that vibration is. And that's one of the reasons why satsang is so important and group meditation and having spiritual friends and right here having the company you keep. Because the vibration of spiritual life and the vibration of master and the vibration of Ananda and Swamiji, it's, it's very subtle. And, and you get into an atmosphere that's very gross or you get into a habit of, of just going with the current of ordinary life, it just disappears. It's just gone. And, and you, don't even, you don't even remember it, what to speak of being able to feel it. It's just, it's just lost. I, I've watched this happen. I've watched people stop showing up <laughs> and then they don't remember what it feels like to just kind of be in that magnetism. Whenever people stop showing up, I always worry because pretty soon they, they won't know what they don't have anymore. But the company you keep will always remind you of what you're trying to do. When you're, when you're with people, this is, of course, the tremendous advantage of living in community, is that you're just constantly having reflected back to you um, the vibration that we're trying to keep. And um, it just makes a huge dif- difference. So the spiritual bodyguard is uh, an extremely real and a very appropriate concept. And as I said, it's most often expressed in the monastic life, but it's 
we are in a monastic life. And, you know, Swami often, Swami would travel and do things alone, but he often took a few people with him, just like Master did. He took a few people with him, partly as an example and also to give them energy and Swami for the same thing, but he also liked it. You know, you go into a restaurant, you walk down the street, you go into a store, you go to a meeting, there's a few people around you who who keep you in the spirit. Um, it's, uh, it's a sensible thing to do. And he, what does he say there? Master says in another place, whether your um, energy goes toward God or goes toward the world depends to a large extent on the company you keep, which is really quite a statement. Environment is stronger than willpower. I, the first time I heard that, when I was 18 or 19, I just rebelled against it. It just, it annoyed me. I thought my willpower, I, thought, I just thought I was more powerful than anything. I mean, based on absolutely nothing. Just based on some random thought that I'd gotten planted in my head at some point. That I, it wasn't that I rejected it, I just, I just didn't want it to be true. But he says it quite strongly, environment is stronger than willpower. So we should just keep that in mind and be very um, protective. When we, we come to Christmas time and we talk about Jesus as the baby, one or the other of the readings that Swami has written for our Sunday service around that time talks about the, the, the baby form of Christ consciousness within us and using the image of the baby Jesus as a way of our understanding that you know, when, when the spiritual um, self is just a baby, you know, babies are absolutely helpless. They have to be totally taken care of. They will not survive if we treat them harshly and we don't attend to them all the time. I read somewhere that in high school, trying to help teenage girls especially, or, or boys too who are careless, appreciate what happens if you have a baby? One of them was that they would give the teenagers a raw egg, a raw uncooked egg, and they would have to keep that egg with them for like either for seven days or 24 hours. I don't know what it was. And then they had to bring it back unbroken. And it could never be out of their sight. They couldn't like go off anywhere without it. They always had to have it with them and they had to keep it from breaking. And it was just trying to give them some idea of what it means to have to care for something all the time. You know, I don't know exactly what the rules were, but you can, you can see what it was. And, of course, it was very easy. They, they put it into their backpack and it gets smashed. You know, they're just riding their bicycle and they fall and it gets smashed. They forget they have it and they just, you know, flap somebody on the back and it gets smashed. You know, just, I remember when one of my first the first friend of mine that I was really close to had a baby. And I used to help her a lot. She was a six, she became a single mom. And I remember we went grocery shopping and she had her little baby boy with her. And I remember I brought in all the groceries, then I brought in the baby. All the groceries I just put on the counter. <laughs> and it was all of a sudden like, you know, it's not that I was that ignorant, but like, I can't just put the baby on the counter. It just was like, it came home to me that you just can't put this down. This has to be always dealt with all the time. So the, the beautiful image Swami talks about is that when the Christ consciousness is, 
is, is awakening within us, it is as tender and as vulnerable as a newborn baby. And we have to care for it with that kind of awareness, otherwise it will die. And to just think, oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm home free. This is, it's not going to happen like that. And this, you know, keeping a spiritual bodyguard and recognizing that we have to be very careful about the company we keep and all of that is realizing I, I'm not free. I'm not free until I'm free. And this is uh, something that I always have to remember. It's a very interesting um, expansion on the Christmas story. And every time we, it comes around in the cycle of the reading, you know, everything in this world is symbolic. Even the birth of an avatar is symbolic. And uh, th- that's a, a very powerful symbolism to put onto it. And, and until we're completely free, until we're in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, we're not safe. And just because it's been our habit to be spiritual for a certain period of time, for one thing, you'd never know when a karmic bomb is going to go off. People, people just, karmic bombs used to be a phrase we used to use a lot. But it's a real thing. It's like everything is fine and then all of a sudden it isn't. And if we have become careless at that point when the bomb goes off, we're much more likely to be blown to bits than if we have been um, humble and conscientious about taking care of our spiritual life. Then when the bomb goes off, there's a, there's a context to contain the damage. Whereas otherwise, you're just gone. That's what I was saying to my friend. Don't get addicted. Don't die. And don't lose your faith. And you'll be fine. Okay, let's take a little bit of a break. Okay. Number 422. The gardens of some... This is, again, just a quote from Master. The gardens of some people's minds are overgrown with weeds and what a job it is to pull them all out, Master says. The gardens of some people's minds are overgrown with weeds and what a job it is to pull them out. I mean, just look how Master looks at the world. He just looks at all of us and he sees all our whole karmic conditions and he sees that, you know, we're a beautiful garden, but the weeds have gotten ahead, and he just starts helping us. It, it's so extraordinary to contemplate. You know, this is a soul that has no, absolutely no reason to be here except to weed the garden of our consciousness, weed the garden of our minds. That's the only reason he's here, and that's all he does. And he doesn't care. I mean, he, you know, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't criticize. He doesn't judge. Why would he judge? We just are what we are. He just helps. Anyway, so and what a job it is to pull them all out. Just when you think the weeds have all been uprooted, up come even more of them. Now he's talking about the individual soul. As obstructive as ever, their roots are very deep. It is very difficult to inspire such people to change. Now he is talking about his role as a guru. That's the phrase. It is very difficult to inspire such people to change. The roots of the weeds in their minds are very, very deep. I mean, I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to take away from this one. On one hand, it's like, gosh, I hope I'm not one of those. I'm not one of the weedy ones. And just when, you, just when he thinks he's gotten it out, then another one springs up and makes a mess about things. I mean, like, gosh, what an awful picture. 
You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of on both, on both sides of this. On one hand, on one hand, and I, I've talked about this at different times, my life is, is kind of schizophrenic at the moment. You know, on one hand, finishing that book about Swamiji, um, just having, you know, starting from publishing it at the 50th anniversary, everything that happened afterwards, going off to India for two months, just like riding the wave of that completion of karma. And then on the other side, you know, there's been a whole lot of issues that we've had to deal with in the community, which are some of the most difficult things I've ever in my life had to face that just make me nervous and sick to my stomach and heart sick. And so it's like on one hand, there's this extraordinary, has been this extraordinary experience of, of completion and freedom. And then on the other hand, there's just been this humiliating realization that as soon as trials and tribulations arrive, I can't sleep. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you feel very free, and then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, you can just be thrown off your equanimity just like that. So, I, I mean, the, the obvious answer, and it's a very simple answer, is just forget about yourself. <laughs> just deal with what's in front of you. And do it properly. And, uh, you know, thou art the doer, not I. I found this wonderful prayer in, uh, in Swami's book of affirmations and prayers. And uh, now I can't remember which exactly one it's for. Thou art the doer, not I. I think it might be for humility. Thou art the doer, not I. Express thy perfection through me while I strive ever eagerly to live in thy light. <laughs> I loved the... I love the combination of images in that one, which is, it's, it's really your show, it's not mine. You have, to, you have to be the one who's acting. My job is to strive ever eagerly. I think to myself, where did those words come from, Swamiji? I mean, everything comes to him as an inspiration. But to strive ever eagerly, there's such an interesting picture there to live in the light. You're the one who's doing it, I'm not doing it. Let your light come through me. And I will strive ever eagerly to live in the light. It reminded me of when uh, our friend Linda, who was, who was part of our church, and she died of cancer. Um, her children were older. She didn't want to leave them, but nonetheless, Divine Mother took her. And she asked Swamiji, how do I pray? And it, it wasn't just a question of, well, it was a question, do I pray to be healed? You know, what, what do I pray for? And his answer was so perfect. He said, pray to be in the light. Because if you're in the light, then everything will solve itself. Another one of the prayers that I found was, let's see, oh, let me just see, find it. No problems can exist when you are near. Hold me tightly in your arms of love. I can't remember the rest of it, but it's, Hold me tightly in your arms of love and give me the strength to hold you always in my heart. So in other words, as long as we're in God, everything is fine. And the strength we need is to hold on to that. Give me the strength to hold you always in my heart. Because if I hold you always in my heart, then I won't, the problems won't feel like problems to me. So that's what he was saying to her. Just pray to be in the light, because if you're in the light, you will know what to do. 
and everything else will naturally follow from that. As I strive ever eagerly to live in the light, everything else will go away. We, we go, problems can't exist when you are near, so give me the strength to always be near you. And uh, when Master was talking about uh, keeping the right company, one of the monks asked him, you know, uh, Master said to those who think me near, how did he, let me try to think it exactly. But it was Master basically said, keep the company, of, of, be in my company. And the, the disciple said, but what if I'm alone? And Master said, am I not always with you? And the other phrase that Master gave was, those who think me near, I am near. And uh, one of these ones that's coming up um, talks about if the disciple calls on Master, Master's attention is there. If the disciple doesn't call on Master, then Master's attention wanders away. It's not that he couldn't be with you. It's, it's, we probably won't get it tonight, but it's a very interesting about the balance between Master's human and divine self. So, um, to attract you to class number 117, <laughs> which will be the one after this one. Um, but what was I, what were we talking about? Just a second here. We were talking about weeds, I think, was what we were talking about. But what was I, what was I saying right now? I lost the train. Who think, oh yes, having the strength, problems, and all of that. Right, exactly. Oh, I, that's what I was saying. I was just talking about how humbling it is to realize how vulnerable we are. That was where I was really saying. And this is what masters, we don't have to be one of those that is impossible to change. But, but it's, the same, it's the same message. It's just that this is a serious project and we have to stay with it. That's all I can say. Okay. 423. The Master would sometimes speak to me about other spiritual teachers. Swamiji used to try to know as little as possible about other spiritual teachers. <laughs> So that when people would ask him, he could say he didn't know. <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't make a practice of examining their lives. He only had, there were only one or two that he uh, was, he would scold, you know, whether the person was there or not. He, he, he would speak out against what he thought were deliberate distortions of the spiritual path. But most of the time he tried not to know. It was easier. The master would sometimes speak to me about other spiritual teachers I'm sure it was to train Swami's discrimination. Once Master described a certain well-known teacher in India who had been invited to participate in a religious congress in Chicago. Master said he, the teacher, and 15 of his followers were coming through Los Angeles on their way to Chicago. I invited him to Mount Washington where we prepared a great banquet for them. At the last moment, there came a telegram from him in Hawaii he had felt the inspiration suddenly to return to India. The master looked at me with a look of mild disapproval. Mild disapproval. And then he said, Master said, No master, he remarked, would have behaved in such a way. So then he says, Swami explains, People would do well to understand that the masters do not behave erratically. Even though they are guided by the flow of inspiration, and that's a very good point because we think because we don't always understand 
the inspiration. We presume that it's random. And that's quite different. So the behavior might look to us like it's here, there, and everywhere. But for a master, it isn't. It's just that we don't understand the intention of that. I remember a situation, just, it just happened where um, Swami just, I was sitting with this other devotee, and Swami sat down, and he just sat with us for a couple of minutes, then he just got up and walked away. And it was a little odd, and later he explained it to me. I don't think I asked him, but I think he explained it to me. He basically said that the person that I was sitting next to was, was having an inward war with Swami. And, and whatever the, the situation was, Swami was trying to guide that person in a certain direction, and that person was, in a most inappropriate way, rebelling against Swami's advice. And Swami came over, basically, to see if there was receptivity. And when what he got instead was this continuous rejection, he just walked away. But anybody looking at it would have thought that Swami behaved very rudely. And even me watching him, it was like, it was just an odd interchange. But he wasn't erratic. He was just doing something I didn't know about. So in, in Ananda Ma used to just do things, her, they call, I think kale was the word that they used, where she would just have this divine feeling. And she would just get up in the middle of the night and walk to the train station and get on the train. And you know, and there was this whole entourage of people, everybody would have to scramble before the internet and before cell phones, if a person went to India and wanted to see Ananda Moima, David Praver can tell you a story about this. And I was talking to another friend uh, who went to see Ma in uh, the mid-70s. I mean, in his whole story, you had to find her. And she could have been, she could be anywhere in India. And my friend was talking to me about he was on a plane and you know, the plane stopped in one town and then it was supposed to go on to the next. And when it stopped in that town, he had this really strong urge to get off the plane. You know, should he get off the plane here? I think in, in the end he did. And that turned out to be the right thing to find her. You know, people would call each other and you would have phone numbers. You would have a phone number of somebody in Delhi. You'd have a phone number of somebody in Mumbai and you would call them from somewhere if you could get the phone to work you know, to find out if they knew where Ma was. But of course, by the time you got there, she might have gone somewhere else. Of course, once the internet and email came, people could keep everybody informed. Well, actually, no, it never came in because she died in 82. I think it got a little easier, but it, it was always very difficult. But she always had a reason. And I mean, one story I heard, she would, sometimes she would feel the call of a devotee and she'd just, you know, cross the country. And then some devotee would tell the story about how they'd been praying for this or that, and all of a sudden Ma shows up. So nobody could have known that except her. At, at one point, I, I was told that, that sometimes there were astral wars going on. And she would feel, and she would go to, I don't know how, whether an astral war happens in a geographic location in the physical world. That was the implication of this. That, you know, she needed to go here because the demons and the angels were having some kind of a conflict and she needed to go there to help them. So anybody watching it would have thought that it was just erratic because it was not, uh, the pattern was not discernible by the ordinary mind. So this man, however, had a commitment to Chicago, had a commitment to Master, and just decided that he would turn around. 
And Master said, no two Master would behave like that. And then Swami goes on to say, because it's rude. And so people would do well, Swami writes, to understand that the Masters do not behave erratically, even though they are guided by the flow of inspiration. In dealing with this world, in dealing with this world, they honor its ways. And that was Sri Yukteswar telling Master that he had to learn to behave. Remember how Master said that he had picked up a few bad habits and in in one of them was thinking that because he was a spiritual person, he didn't have to really follow the rules of this world. He was careless. You know, he didn't lock the ashram and one of his prized cauliflowers was stolen. He just thought he was allowed not to follow the rules of this world because he was above them. But uh, Master didn't feel that way at all. You know, Swamiji was, Swamiji was so gracious. Uh, you know, one of the things he did, he, he gave people gifts a lot. I mean, he knew that people would treasure things that, that, that he gave them. But he was just very attentive to the propriety of things. He was very well brought up. He was well, brought up with, very, um, with rules of very gracious living. And he always followed them. You know, he had, he had license to be whatever he wanted to be. But he always followed the, 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 the proper way to behave because that's what Master wanted too. In dealing with this world, they, the Masters honor its ways. And they are ever true to their word. And this was also, this man had given his word that he would be there. And he just broke it. Swamiji's commitment to having give his, given his word would drive a lot of us crazy. I mean, I remember when we, I flew with him, we flew with him from Europe to South Carolina, and we were, we were going to have to take, he, Swami was so unwell, and we were being hosted by these people somewhere there, and, we were, and they, in, instead of giving him a plane ride for the second part of the trip, we were going to have to take a six or an eight hour car ride. And it just was too much for Swami. And I just, I was beside myself to get him to not do it. I just, you know, I was annoyed with the people for not putting him on a plane. And uh, I just told him, I said, you can, we can just call them. I can tell them that you're not well. And, and he got real annoyed with me. I've given my word. He said, I would rather die than break my word. And I said, well, I would rather you didn't die. And then he got very sympathetic. He said, I understand. I understand. The way we solved it is that we spent a fortune on airline tickets. <laughs> we just, I don't know how much they were, but they were just, it was probably $1,000 for three of us to fly an hour because it was, you know, it was the only way to do it. But I finally got that we would just spend the money and that was the solution because he wasn't going to break his word. I would rather die than break my word. I mean, that's, that's really astonishing. When, uh, he, when he had to have open heart surgery and he went to the... He was supposed to have a pacemaker put in. It was like the 14th or something of December of uh, probably 1994. And uh, this is in the book. They were supposed to put a pace... In the book, The Light Bearer, uh, they were supposed to put a pacemaker in, which was a simple procedure. So he had promised to do a television interview in Palo Alto on like the 16th 
whether the, whether those are exact dates, but something like that. Two days later, and he was going to have the pacemaker put in, he would be fine, and then two days later he'd go and do that. And the pacemaker scene was in Sacramento, which is 200 miles away from Palo Alto. But when he got there and they tested his heart, they realized that the pacemaker wasn't the issue, that he had serious problems with a heart valve, and they wanted him to go into surgery immediately. He was, he was in such intense danger of a heart attack. Swami said, I've promised to give this television show. I mean, it's like, you don't have to give the television show, Swamiji. I've given my word. That, I mean, just, that was it. I've given my word. And, they want, and so they finally worked out a compromise. He would immediately go into the hospital they would keep him under observation. Swami said, I've been living with this for a long time. He said, I don't think two days is going to make a difference. That was his reasoning. But they, he made a deal with the doctors. He would go into the hospital. He would stay in the hospital. And after two days, if it hadn't gotten worse, he would drive to Palo Alto. He would do the television show. He would spend the night, and then he would come back and do the operation, which is exactly what he did. It's just once, once he's committed, he was committed. When he was doing the television shows for the Bhagavad Gita. This story is also in Swami Kriyananda as we have known him. And he was doing like six or seven shows a day. And they had the, the studio was set up right in the living room of the house he was living in in Gorgaon at that point. I came over for a week or two and I, I served him breakfast and he, he was like breakfast was at 9.30 and he was going to start filming at 10 or something like that. I put the breakfast on the table and left him alone because he needed solitude. I came back, you know, half an hour, 15 minutes later. So he was just sitting like this with his head in his hands and he hadn't touched a bit of, he hadn't touched anything of his breakfast. And he said, I just don't have the energy to lift the spoon, is what he said. So I tried to started trying to persuade him to not film. But he had committed himself to finish by such and so a date this was the schedule like this and I just I was I was frantic I became very unsettled I learned when I saw Narayani take care of Swami later she never became agitated she was never afraid and that was one of the ways she was able to help him so she wasn't afraid I would become very afraid see there's the fear again so I was trying to stop him and he said get thee behind me Satan I said, I'm fighting on the wrong side. He said, yes, and I don't appreciate it. And then he called Jyotish, and he sort of laid out how exhausted he was and all that he had to do. And Jyotish was much more intuitive than I was. He, so, um, Jyotish said, well, you've given your word, and Master will give you the strength. And Swami said, thank you. That's what I needed to hear. See, I was trying to break his will. Like, what kind of a friend is that? And Jyotish tried to strengthen his will. I mean, I learned a super serious lesson from that. So, when you have promised to be somewhere, and people have really committed themselves, and then you just randomly decide, I won't, that's not the example that either Master or Swami set for us. And it, 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 it also tells us, you know, be careful about what you commit to, but once you commit... Uh, my word is my bond. That This is one of the 
affirmations that it's I think it's for moral vigor if I'm not mistaken that's in the affirmations and prayers book it might be for something else my word is my bond so also is my resolution I always think about that a lot my word is my bond but not always my resolution (laughs) and I can't say that I always keep my word but I'm serious about keeping my word but I break my word to myself a lot and that, that's what, uh, so also is my resolution. That's, and Swami, it's not a matter of whether the other people would release him from his commitment. He's made the commitment. You know, I'm keeping it to myself. There's a lot of power in that. Every time we come to that one, I always have to s- stop and think about it. So, more, Swami, in, in dealing with this world, they honor its ways and they are ever true to their word. Moreover, if they are obliged to mix socially with others, they are considerate of people's feelings. They are not, in other words, like rudderless ships driven hither and yon by the fickle winds of an imaginary intuition. Well, he doesn't give that much space, does he? (laughs) Rudderless ships driven hither and yon by the fickle winds of imaginary intuition. I mean, yay, 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 yay. In other words, be careful. You know, be careful about just falling into bad habits. I mean, he was using the example of that spiritual teacher, but, you know, on the spiritual path, you do find people who are always switching on the basis of, this is what I feel. I remember Hanel, who was the elderly, I say elderly, he was 65 when he came. <laughs> Maybe even 60. Um, but I was 24, so he seemed really, really old. And uh, he, was the, he, man, he ran the garden. And he, he came, Swami invited him to come to Ananda to just meditate. He was a, a longtime disciple of Master, a very serious meditator. He was, he was one of the original members of Ananda. He, he built a, a dome home at Ananda uh, retreat the same time Swami built his. He was really right there. Hanel's dome, Swami's dome the temple, the dining room, all of that went up at the same time. But Hano was a, a, a world-class authority on biodynamic organic gardening. And we were trying to get a garden going at the farm. And he looked at it and he said, they will never get this going unless I help them. So he committed himself to helping us. And he trained Ananta and Maria who are still doing it. And a lot of people went into the garden, Shivani, Kirtani, Sadhana Devi, Jaya, Devarshi later, a lot of people who, who, who later took other kinds of roles were trained by Hanel in that garden. And he was a serious taskmaster. Um, but he complained to Swami about, you know, these people. They come to work in the garden and then they decide that Krishna wants them to go swimming in the river. <laughs> you know, and he and Swami just laughed and laughed at that. You know, it's like, no, not really. That's not what Krishna wants you to do. And so that also, we have to watch for that. All right, my friends, that's it for tonight. So what we covered was, um, we went from 419 through 423. Thank you.